0: book three chapter six of the cathedral by hugh walpole this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter six tuesday june twenty two to the fair as brandon left the cathedral ronder came up to him brandon with bowed head had turned into the cloisters although that was not the quickest way to his home The two men were alone in the greyness, lit from without by the brilliant sun, as though it had been a stage-setting. "'I beg your pardon, Archdeacon. I must speak to you.' Brandon raised his head. He stared at Ronder, and then said, "'I have nothing to say to you. I do not wish to speak to you.' "'I know that you do not.' Ronder's face was really troubled. There was an expression in his eyes that his aunt had never seen.' brandon moved on looking neither to right nor left ronder continued i know how you feel about me but to-day somehow this service i feel that i can't allow our quarrel to continue without speaking it isn't easy for me he broke off brandon's voice shook i have nothing to say to you i do not wish to say anything to you you have been my enemy since you first came to this town my work my family i am not your enemy indeed indeed i am not i won't deny that when i came here i found that you who were the most important man in the place thought differently from myself on every important question you yourself, who are an honest man, would not have had me back out from what I believed to be my duty. I could do no other. But this personal quarrel between us was most truly not of my own seeking. I have liked and admired you from the beginning. Such a matter as the Pybus living has forced us into opposition, but I am convinced that there are many views that we have in common, that we could be friends working together.' Brandon stopped. Did my son or did he not come to see you before he went to London? Ronder hesitated. Yes, he said, he did, but did he or did he not ask your advice? Yes, he did, but did you advise him to take the course which he afterwards followed? No, on my honour, Archdeacon, I did not. I did not know what his personal trouble was. I did not ask him, and he did not tell me. We talked of generalities had you heard before he came to you gossip about my son i had heard some silly talk very well then but you shall listen to me archdeacon i scarcely knew your son i had met him only once before at some one's house and talked to him then only for five minutes he himself asked to come and see me i could not refuse him when he asked me i did not of course wish to refuse him i liked the look of him and simply for his own sake wished to know him better when he came he was not with me for very long and our talk was entirely about religion belief faith in god the meaning of life and nothing more particular than such things did he say when he left you that what you had told him had helped him to make up his mind yes Were you, when he talked to you, quite unconscious that he was my son, and that any action that he took would at once affect my life, my happiness? Of course I was aware that he was your son, but there is another question that I wish to ask you, Canon Ronder. Did someone come to you not long ago with a letter that purported to be written by my wife? Again Ronder hesitated. Uh, Yes, he said did she show you that letter she did did she ask your advice as to what she should do with it she did i told her did you tell her to come with it to me no on my life archdeacon no i told her to destroy it and that she was behaving with the utmost wickedness did you believe that that letter was written by my wife no then why if you believed that this woman was going about the town with a forged letter directed against my happiness and my family's happiness did you not come to me and tell me of it you must remember archdeacon that we were not on good terms we had had a ridiculous quarrel that had by some means or another become public property throughout the whole town i will not deny that i felt sore about that "'I did not know what sort of reception I might get if I came to you.' "'Very well. There is a further question that I wish to ask you. Will you deny that from the moment that you set foot in this town you have been plotting against me in respect to the Pybus living? You found out on which side I was standing, and at once took the other.' FROM THAT MOMENT YOU WENT ABOUT THE TOWN, HAVING SECRET INTERVIEWS WITH EVERY SORT OF PERSON, WORKING THEM BY FLATTERY AND SUGGESTION ROUND TO YOUR SIDE. WILL YOU DENY THAT? AGAINST HIS WILL AND HIS ABSOLUTE DETERMINATION, RONDER'S ANGER BEGAN TO RISE. THAT I HAVE BEEN PLOTTING, AS YOU CALL IT, HE SAID, I ABSOLUTELY AND UTTERLY DENY. THAT IS AN INSULTING WORD that i have been against you in the matter of pybus from the first has of course been known to every one here i have been against you because of what i believe to be the future good of our church and of our work here there has been nothing personal in that matter at all you lie said brandon suddenly raising his voice every word that you have spoken to me this morning has been a lie you are an enemy of myself and of my church and with god's help your plots and falsehoods shall yet be defeated you may take from me my wife and my children you may ruin my career here that has been built up through ten years of unfaltering loyalty and work but god himself is stronger than your inventions and god will see to it i am your enemy canon ronder to the end as you are mine you had better look to yourself you have been concerned in certain things that the law may have something to say about look to yourself look to yourself he strode off down the cloisters people came to luncheon there had been an invitation of some weeks before he scarcely recognised them one was mr martin another dr Truden, an old mrs purley a well-established widow an ancient resident a miss barrister he scarcely recognised them although he talked so exactly in his accustomed way that no one noticed anything at all mrs brandon also talked in her accustomed way that is she scarcely spoke Only that afternoon, at tea at the Dean's, Dr. Trudon confided to Julia Preston that he could assure her that all the rumours were false. The archdeacon had never seemed better. Funny for him afterwards to remember. Shadows of a shade. When they left Brandon it was as though they had never been. The echo of their voices died away into the ticking of the clock, the movement of plates, the shifting of chairs. He shut himself into his study— here was his stronghold his fortress he settled into his chair and the things in the room gathered around him with friendly consoling gestures we are still here we are your old friends we know you for what you truly are we do not change like the world he fell into a deep sleep he was desperately tired he had not slept at all last night he was sunk into deep fathomless unconsciousness then he arose from that climbing up up seeing before him a high black snow-tipped mountain the ascent of this he must achieve his life depended upon it he seemed to be naked the wind lashing his body icy cold so cold that his breath stabbed him he climbed the rocks cut his knees and hands then on every side his enemies appeared Bentick, major and foster the bishop's chaplain women even children laughing and behind them hog and that drunken painter their hands were on him they pulled at his flesh they beat on his face then suddenly rising like a full moon behind the hill Ronder. he woke with a cry the sun was flooding the room and at the joy of that great light and of finding himself alone he could have burst into tears of relief his thoughts came to him quickly his brain had been clarified by that sleep horrible though it had been he thought steadily now the facts all arranged before him his wife had told him almost with vindictive pride that she had been guilty of adultery he did not at present think of morris at all to him adultery was an awful a terrible sin He himself had been physically faithful to his wife, although he had perhaps never, in the true sense of the word, loved her. Because he had been a man of splendid physique and great animal spirits, he had, of course, and especially in his earlier days, known what physical temptation was. But the extreme preoccupation of his time with every kind of business had saved him from that acutest lure that idleness brings. Nevertheless, it may confidently be said that, had temptation been of the sharpest and the most aggravating, he would never have, even for a moment, dwelt upon the possibility of yielding to it. To him this was the sin against the Holy Ghost. He had not, indeed, the purity of the saint to whom these sins are simply not realisable he had the confidence of one who had made his vows to god and having made them could not conceive that they should be broken and yet strangely enough with all the horror that his wife's confession had raised in him there was mingled against his will the strangest fear for her she had lived with him during all these years he had been her guard protector husband her immortal soul now was lost unless in some way he could save it for her and it was he who should save it she had suddenly a new poignant importance for him that she had never had before her danger was as deadly and as imminent to him as though she had been in peril from wild beasts in peril but she had fallen he could not save her nothing that he could do now could prevent her sin at that realization utter despair seized him he moaned aloud shutting out the light from his eyes with his hands there followed then wild disbelief what she had told him was untrue she had said it to anger him to spite him he sprang from his chair and moved toward the door he would find her and tell her that he knew that she had been lying to him that he did not believe midway he stopped he knew that she had spoken the truth that last moment when they had looked at one another had been compounded built up of truth both a glass and a wall a glass to reveal absolutely a wall to divide them the one from the other forever. ever his brain active now like a snake coiling and uncoiling within the flaming spaces of his mind darted upon morris he must find morris at once no delay at once at once what to do he did not know but he must be face to face with him and deal with him that wretched miserable whining crying fool that he he but the picture stopped there he saw now neither morris nor his wife only a clerical hat a high white collar like a wall a sniggering laugh a door closing and his headache was upon him again his heart pounding and leaping no matter he must find morris nothing else he went to the door opened it and walked cautiously into the hall as though he had intruded into some one else's house and was there to rob as he came into the hall mrs brandon was crossing it also furtively they saw one another and stood staring she would have spoken but something in his face terrified her terrified her so desperately that she suddenly turned and stumbled upstairs repeating some words over and over to herself he did not move but stayed there watching until she had gone something made him change his clothes he put on trousers and an old overcoat and a shabby old clerical hat he was a long time in his dressing-room and he was a while before his looking-glass in his shirt and drawers, staring as though he were trying to find himself. While he looked, he fancied that someone was behind him, and he searched for his shadow in the glass, but could find nothing. He moved cautiously out of the house, closing the heavy hall door very softly behind him. The afternoon was advanced, and the faint fair shadows of the summer evening were stealing from place to place. He had intended to go at once to Morris's house, but his head was now aching so violently that he thought he would walk a little first, so that he might have more control. That was what he wanted—self-control. Self-control! That was their plot—to make him lose command of himself, so that he should show to everyone that he was unfit to hold his position he must have perfect control of everything his voice his body his thoughts and that was why just now he must walk in the darker places in the smaller streets until soon he would be outwardly himself again so he chose for his walk the little dark winding path that runs steeply from the cathedral along behind Cannon's yard and bodger street down to the pole it was dark here even on this lovely summer evening and no one was about but sounds broke through cries and bells and the distant bray of bands and from the hill opposite the clash of the fair at the bottom of the path he stood for a while looking down the bank to the river here the pall runs very quietly and sweetly like a little country river he crossed it and still moving like a man in a dream started up the hill on the other side he was not now consciously thinking of anything at all he was aware only of a great pain at his heart and a terrible loneliness loneliness what an agony no one near him no one to speak to him every eye mocking him god as well far far away from him hidden by walls and hills as he climbed upward the fair came nearer to him he did not notice it he crossed a path and was at a turnstile a man asked him for money he paid a shilling and moved forward he liked crowds he wanted crowds now either crowds or no one crowds where he would be lost and not noticed so many thousands were there but nevertheless he was noticed that was the archdeacon who would have thought that he would come to the fair too grand but there he was yes that was the archdeacon that tall man in a soft black hat yes some noticed him but many thousands did not the fair was packed strangers from all the county over sailors and gipsies and farmers and tramps women no better than they should be and shop girls and decent farmers wives and village girls all sorts thousands of course to whom the archdeacon meant nothing and that was a fair the most wonderful our town had ever seen the most wonderful it ever was to see as with many other things that jubilee fair marked a period no fairs again like the good old fairs general education has seen to that it was a fair as there are still some to remember that had in it a strange element of fantasy all the accustomed accompaniments of fairs were there the two fat sisters outside whose booth a notice was posted begging the public not to prod with umbrellas to discover whether the fat were fat or wadding trixie the little lady with neither arms nor legs sews and writes with her teeth the great albert the strongest man in europe who will lift weights against all comers battling edwards the champion boxer of the southern counties hippo's world circus with six monkeys two lions three tigers and a rhino all the pistol firing ball throwing coconut contrivances conceivable and roundabouts at every turn all these were there but behind them on the outskirts of them and yet in the very heart of them there were other unaccustomed things some said that a ship from the east had arrived at drymouth and that certain jugglers and chinese and foreign merchants instead of going on to london as they had intended turned to polchester how do i know at this time of day how do we any of us know how anything gets here and what does it matter but there is at this very moment living in the magnificently renovated sea-town an old chinaman who came in jubilee year and has been there ever since doing washing and behaving with admirable propriety no sign of opium about him anywhere one element that they introduced was colour our modern fairs are not very strong in the element of colour It is true that one of the roundabouts was ablaze with gilt and tinsel, and in the centre of it, whence comes the music, there were women with brazen faces and bosoms of gold. It is true also that outside the circus and the fat sisters and battling Edwards there were flaming pictures with reds and yellows thrown about like temperance tracks, but the modern figures in these pictures spoilt the colour. The photography spoilt it. Too much reality, where there should have been mystery. Too much mystery, where realism was needed. But here, only two yards from the circus, was a booth hung with strange cloths purple and yellow and crimson and behind the wooden boards a man and a woman with brown faces and busy twirling twisting brown hands were making strange sweets which they wrapped into coloured packets and on the other side of the fat sisters there was a tent with li hung above it in letters of gold and red and inside the tents boards on trestles and on the boards a long purple cloth and on the cloth little toys and figures and images all of the gayest colours and the strangest shapes and all as cheap as nothing farther down the lane of booths was the tent of hayakawa the juggler a little boy in primrose-coloured tights turned on a board outside the tent round and round and round on his head like a teetotum and inside once every half-hour hayakawa in a lovely jacket of gold and silver gave his entertainment eating fire piercing himself with silver swords finding white mice in his toes and pulling ribbons of crimson and scarlet out of his ears farther away again there were the brothers gomez spaniards perhaps dark magnificent in figure running on one wire across the air balancing sunshades on their noses, leaping, jumping, standing pyramid high, their muscles gleaming like billiard balls. And behind and before, and in and out, there were strange figures moving through the fair, strange voices raised against the evening sky, strange smells of cooking, strange songs suddenly rising, dying as soon as heard only a breath away the english fields were quietly lying safe behind their hedges and the english sky changed from blue to green and from green to mother-of-pearl and from mother-of-pearl to ivory and stars stabbed like silver nails the great canopy of heaven and the cathedral bells rang peal after peal above the slowly lighting town brandon was conscious of little of this as he moved on even the thought of morris had faded from him he could not think consecutively his mind was broken up like a mirror that had been smashed into a thousand pieces he was most truly in a dream soon he would wake up out of this noise away from these cries and lights and would find it all as he had for so many years known it HE WOULD BE SITTING IN HIS DRAWING-ROOM, HIS LEGS STRETCHED OUT, HIS WIFE AND DAUGHTER NEAR TO HIM, THE RUMBLE OF THE ORGAN COMING THROUGH THE WALL TO THEM, THINKING PERHAPS OF TOMORROW'S DUTIES, THE TOWN QUIET ALL AROUND HIM, FRIENDS AND WELL-WISHERS EVERYWHERE, NO TERRIBLE PAIN IN HIS HEAD, HAPPILY ARRANGING HOW EVERYTHING SHOULD BE, HAPPY, HAPPY, OH HOW HAPPY THAT REAL LIFE WAS! when he awoke from his dream he would realize that and thank god for it when he awoke he stumbled over something and looking up realized that he was in a very crowded part of the fair a fire was blazing somewhere near gas jets although the evening was bright and clear were flaming screams and cries seemed to make the very sky rock above his head where was he what was he doing here why had he come he would go home he turned he turned to face the fire that leapt close at his heel it was burning at the back of a caravan in a dark cul-de-sac away from the main thoroughfare to its blazing light the bare boards and ugly planking of the booth splashed here and there with torn paper that rustled a little in the evening breeze were all that offered themselves near by a horse untethered was quietly nosing at the trodden soil behind the caravan the field ran down to a ditch and thick hedging brandon stared at the fire as though absorbed by its light what did he see there visions perhaps did he see the cathedral the precincts the quiet circle of demure old houses his own door his own bedroom did he see his wife moving hurriedly about the room opening drawers and shutting them pausing for a moment to listen then coming out closing the door, listening again, then stepping downstairs, pausing for a moment in the hall to lay something on the table, then stepping out into the green, wavering evening light or did the flames make pictures for him of the deserted railway station the long platform lit only by one lamp two figures meeting exchanging almost no word pacing for a little in silence the dreary spaces stepping back as the london express rolled in such a safe night to choose for escape then burying themselves in it like rabbits in their burrow did his vision lead him back to the deserted house silent save for its ticking clocks black in that ring of lights and bells and shouting voices or was he conscious only of the warmth and life of the fire of some sudden companionship with the woman bending over it to stir the sticks and lift some pot from the heart of the flame he was feeling perhaps a sudden peace here and a silence and was aware of the stars breaking into beauty one by one above his head but his peace if for a moment he had found it was soon interrupted a voice that he knew came across to him from the other side of the fire why archdeacon who would have thought to find you here he looked up and saw through the fire the face of davray the painter he turned to go and at once davray was at his side no don't go you're in my country now archdeacon not your own you're not cock of this walk you know last time we met you thought you owned the place well you can't think you own this fight it out mr archdeacon fight it out brandon answered i have no quarrel with you mr devray nor have i anything to say to you no quarrel i like that i'd knock your face in for two pence you blasted hypocrite and i will too all free ground here devray's voice was shrill He was swaying on his legs. The woman looked up from the fire and watched them. Brandon turned his back to him and saw, facing him, Samuel Hogg and some men behind him. "'Why, good evening, Mr. Archdeacon,' said Hogg, taking off his hat and bowing. "'What a delightful place for a meeting!' Brandon said quietly, "'Is there anything you want from me?' He realized at once that Hogg was drunk. Uh, nothing said hogg except to give you a damned good hiding i've been waiting for that these many weeks see him boys he continued turning to the men behind him here's this parson who ruined my daughter as fine a girl as ever you've seen ruined her he did him and his blasted son what do you say boys is it right for him to be a parading around here as proud as a peacock and nobody touchin him what do you say to giving him a damned good hiding the men smiled and pressed forward. DeVray, from the other side, suddenly lurched into Brandon. Brandon struck out, and DeVray fell, and lay where he fell. Hogg cried, "'Now for em, boys,' and at once they were upon him. Hogg's face rose before Brandon's, extended, magnified in all its details. Brandon hit out, and then was conscious of blows upon his face, of someone kicking him in the back, of himself hitting wildly of the fire leaping mountains high behind him of a woman's cry of something trickling down into his eye of sudden contact with warm naked sweating flesh of a small pinched face the eyes almost close rising before him and falling again of a shout then sudden silence and himself on his knees groping in darkness for his hat of his voice far from him murmuring to him it's all right it's my hat it's my hat i must find he wiped his forehead the back of his hand was covered with blood he saw once again the fire low now and darkly illumined by some more distant light heard the scream of the merry-go-round stared about him and saw no living soul climbed to his feet and saw the stars then very slowly like a blind man in the dark felt his way to the field's edge found a gate Passed through and collapsed, shuddering in the hedge's darkness. End of book three, chapter six.